From what I understand, you brought in so much soup for our Super Bowl lunch that they're blowing circuits down there. That's a good sign, though, because I'm hungry. And uh, if I didn't know better, there's so many um, folks with Life of Purpose uh, shirts on today. Did you guys all get the memo, I take it? Uh, I, I think Life of Purpose is in the Super Bowl. Are we cheering for Life of Purpose? I love it. Um, yeah, we have, we've had this sort of tradition to um, have a, a nice soup lunch after on Super Bowl Sunday, and it's been great. And of course, make sure you stick around, even if um, you didn't have to bring a soup. There's so much there, and vote for your favorite soup, and we got some prizes for that. But just a good time to kind of stick around afterwards and have some fellowship. That's what really makes, uh, I believe, this church special is just the fact that we can um, just hang out and get to know each other and visit. And um, I was, uh, we did a wedding here last night. Uh, I did one for a couple that. Uh, um, drive, they drive 30 minutes because they, they love this church. They, moved, they were here in St. Clair Shores, they moved away, and they came back because they just love it, and they love the, the intimate uh, relationships that are formed here. Uh, amen to that? Amen. Yeah. So I'm excited to bring another message from the book of Exodus, and sometimes when people uh, ask, maybe you've asked the question yourself, but I've been asked this question before as a pastor. The question that I'm asked is, is it really necessary that I read the Old Testament? Is it really necessary that we read the Old Testament? Because then I get some kind of like, you know, come on, pastor, it's a little dry, it's a little boring at times, a little repetitive. You ever had those thoughts, like feeling like, eh, do I really need, is it really necessary? The answer is yes. Well, you knew that you were going to get that answer from me, right? But, but there's a reason why you need to read the Old Testament. Today you're going to see that reason. It's pretty amazing that God has a plan for your life. He does. He has a plan for your life, and it begins really with his redemption. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about, the book of, of um, redeeming. Uh, and it's all a foreshadowing. That's the beauty of it. God had this plan, which he enacted around 3400 uh, B.C., um, or, excuse me, 1400 B.C., 3400 years ago. And then, get this, 1,500 years later, when Jesus is born, the real Passover plan is completed. So the foreshadowing of what we're going to see today, I want to help you make the connection to Jesus being the Passover lamb. And that's the title, God's Passover plan, because God has a plan for our life. We love to say that. We love to talk about Jeremiah 29 and say God has a plan for your life, and, and we like to do that, but... Really, truly, he does have a plan, and the Passover plan specifically is a really special plan for you, because that's where your journey starts with God. At least that's where it should start. It should start with Jesus. There's lots of folks out there that believe in God, they know about God, but when you know God personally, intimately, you know his son Jesus, because ultimately that's what Jesus said. I reveal my Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Old Testament and New Testament. I thank you that we have it, that it's been preserved all of these years, so that when we read what we're reading, what we see in your scriptures, we see what the original writers wrote, that the Holy Spirit moved these men who moved the pen, and that we have your words, we have your truth, and we can take that and understand that and apply it to our lives every day. Thank you for your plan, Lord. Thank you for your Passover plan. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. 
So these last two Sundays, we've been talking about the ten plagues on Egypt. And the first uh, two Sundays ago, it was God, uh, one through three, God striking Egypt with three plagues. Remember, a plague is a strike, like a blow, like a punch. And he, um, we saw, so we saw nine plagues so far. Today we see the final plague. And uh, I got a comment that said, uh, wait, you forgot the last one. No, I didn't. It's today. You, you made it. It's today. So we're going to look, uh, first of all, at Exodus 11. That's where we're at in the scripture. Exodus 11. I'm going to go verse by verse through um, these, uh, this, these two chapters here. Um, basically, the first three verses of, of Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterwards... God was confident he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So I had this question when I read that verse. How did God know that this one would work? How did God know that the 10th plague would be the right, the, the, the 10th plague, like the, the final plague that would send Pharaoh uh, the message to let his people go? Like how, how come it wasn't 11 or 12 or 13? How did God know? And the answer is because God knows our hearts. He knew Pharaoh's heart, and he knew how hard Pharaoh's heart was, and he knows your heart. In fact, if you ever read Psalm 139, David will tell you in that psalm, where can you hide from God? Is there anything God doesn't know about you? And what's the answer to that? Nothing. You can't hide. You can't hide from God. So verse 2 then says, Moses tells the people, speak now in hearing of the people. This is from God. And this is an interesting thing that God tells the Israelites to do. Every man ask of his neighbor, and every woman ask of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So you read that and you're like, wait a minute, did God just say to the Israelites, loot the Egyptians? Did he just say, steal all their gold and silver? And the answer is no, he didn't say to loot them, he said to ask them. And when you ask them, they will freely hand over to you their silver and gold. Folks, that's a God thing. That's a God thing. Think about that. Like, how would that work today? Imagine someone owes you money, a lot of money, and you think hell will freeze over before they ever give you another dime. You you thought of somebody, didn't you? Somebody came to mind, I bet. But then one day, you just ask them, you say, I need some money, can you give me some money? And shockingly, they don't give you $20, they don't give you $100, they literally empty their bank account and give it all to you. That's the equivalent of what happened in Egypt. The Egyptians just handed over all of their wealth to the Israelites before they were about to leave town. Verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord did that. It's a God thing. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of people. So these three sermons point out three things about the plague. First, that God is all-powerful. I showed you in two weeks ago, he was basically plaguing, striking out all of the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. God is powerful. Then the second thing we saw um, last week is God protects his people. God protects his people. And and that was a really, I mean, I went a little long, I know, I admit it, uh, last week. But I got to tell you, I mean, to me, I'm still processing that that message 
and I hope you are too, that God protects his people. And today we take a lot of Old Testament verses. There was a great question that was asked uh, after the message last week. What promises can I claim in the Old Testament? And that, was, that, that drove me more into studying and, and, and understanding how to answer that question, which I won't do right now, but if you want to know the answer to that, you can send me an email or text me. But um, yeah, God's protection over his people. And then today we're seeing God's Passover plan, his plan for all people to redeem them. But in all of that, in all of these plagues, something else amazing happened. Moses became famous. Like he became famous amongst all the people. In fact, on social media, all his videos went viral, I'm telling you, all right, if you believe that. The hottest costumes for Halloween, Moses and Aaron, the dynamic duo, right? They had bobbleheads of Moses. Christmas, all the men got staffs, and the little boys, transformer staffs into snakes. You thought transformers was a new thing. I'm kidding, of course. All right, now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 12 to see the plan, God's Passover plan. And so you see, it kind of sets the stage here, what's going on. And uh, something interesting happens right off the bat. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of a year for you. So what happens here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is that God institutes a new calendar for the Israelites. Today, it's still in use. It's called the Hebrew calendar. In fact, I made a copy for you on the offering table there in the middle of the room back there. You can take a copy if you're interested in it. The Hebrew calendar was different, uh, is different than our Gregorian calendar that we use. The Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar, follows the, the moon. But our calendar is a solar calendar. We have a leap year once every how many years? Four, and we add a day to, catch, to kind of catch up. But the lunar calendar is only 29 and a half days per month, so they have to add a month every leap year, which is every three years, to catch up. But that's how the Hebrew calendar works. And some interesting things about it, they use it, of course, for their religious festivals, um, which one is, two of them are being instituted in this text here. But they also start um, from the beginning of the creation of the earth. So this year, when you look at the Hebrew calendar, it's year 5,783. That tells you that the, the Jewish people believe in a young earth. But if you watch the shows today, if you watch television, you watch the movies, if you went to a public school, then you are told probably that the earth is billions of years old. Am I right? right. Yeah, you hear that all the time. I'm telling you to be careful what you hear. And, and apply it to the Word of God. Just because your teacher tells you, teenagers, that the earth is billions of years old don't, doesn't make it true. In fact, science keeps changing their mind about this. Because every time they make a discovery that doesn't fit into their preconceived idea, belief system, they change the timeline. That's what they keep doing. So be careful. Do your own research if you want to know how old this earth is. That was extra, no charge. <laughs> the Hebrew calendar is used for those special days. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel, on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb from the household. Verse 4, 
If the household is too small for a lamb, he, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. So I love how practical this is, right? This is a very practical command here. Families come together. You're going to sacrifice a lamb. You're going to eat that lamb. And if your family's not big enough, then combine families together and share the lamb to eat for the Passover meal. And I just, you know, like to look into the text a little bit and realize that, yes, sharing is caring. But there were some football families in Egypt and they're like, we're not sharing. We can eat a whole lamb ourselves. Am I right? Billy Joe Jim Bob could take down a whole lamb all on his own, even the grizzle and fat. Great outdoors, anyone? By the way, you read about this lamb. What picture comes to mind when you hear lamb? I have a picture for you. Is this what comes to mind? Did I hear an awe? Yeah, I thought I'd hear an awe. It's so cute. I, I found that picture. I'm like, oh, what a pretty little lamb. Too bad it's going to get slaughtered. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. The, word, the Hebrew word for lamb, though, I must tell you, okay, when we think of lamb, we immediately associate with sheep. Because that's our word for lamb. Lamb is a sheep. But the Hebrew word for lamb here does not indicate it's only a sheep. In fact, when we keep reading here, verse 5, it says that your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you can take it from the sheep or from the goats. So lamb actually means one member from a flock. That's actually the technical Hebrew word, one member from a flock. And that's important, as you'll see in a little bit. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when Moses writes again about the requirements, he will say that you can also use a cow. Because he will say in Deuteronomy, one member from a flock or a herd. So it could have been a sheep, or a goat, or a cow. Verse 7, what are you to do with that? Well, they take some of the blood of the uh, lamb, whatever it might be, and you put that blood on the doorposts and the lintel, not lentil, okay, lintel, uh, that's the top part of the doorway, and uh, of the houses in which you will eat of it. So uh, I got, uh, uh, there's a little bit later on, there's another verse that tells the Israelites exactly what to use to paint the blood. It's a hyssop branch. They're to use a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch looks like this. I think we have it for you. So it's kind of like this, uh, um, that's a hyssop branch today. Um, and then they take that and they, and they dip the, uh, the, you know, the blood, dip it in the blood, and then they paint it on the doorpost, and this is probably the best picture for you to see. The next one will show you if you can see it, if you're close enough to a screen. So they painted the blood on the lintel, the top part of the doorway, and then on the sides, the doorposts, and that's intentional. They did that. So verse 8 then tells us that they eat the flesh of the lamb that night, roasted on the fire, they eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they will eat. This is all in preparation for the 10th plague. All in preparation for the 10th plague. You'll see in a minute what, that, what it entails. But I want to talk about the three-part meal here. A nice balanced meal, by the way, isn't it? Bread, meat, 
you got some protein, you got some carbs, and you even got some vegetables, some herbs. Um, Jewish people still eat this meal today. It's called the cedar, S-E-D-E-R. The word actually means order. So they have a cedar meal, Passover meal, and they eat the food in the same order. They recite the same prayers in order. They sing the same songs in order. If you were here last week, you know that I'm excited. These are left brain people. They do everything in order. All right? And then, um, so that's the uh, three-part meal. First part of the meat, I'm going to test you here now, see if you're paying attention. Was it sheep meat? Or was it goat meat? Could have been either, right? It was a lamb. So, Exodus uh, 12, 46, something significant about the lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You, take, you shall not take any of it outside of your house. And this is the part that's important. You shall not break any of its bones. So this was a rotisserie lamb. Right? How else are you going to cook it? Then there's the bread, which they call matzo, unleavened bread. Think of pita bread. No yeast, no leaven, and that's because they were in a hurry. They were in a hurry. They, they were gonna, in a hurry to get out of Egypt. Now, when you read the New Testament, you might recall, wait a minute, yeast, that's a bad thing. Yeast is uh, what Jesus talked about, like that's a sin or that's false teaching. You remember those parables that he talked about? Uh, a yeast, even Paul mentions that yeast is, a, is a, a bad thing. But there's one parable where Jesus actually equates yeast or leaven to the kingdom of heaven, which tells us that it's not always a bad symbol. So more than anything, basically I believe leaven symbolizes time. It takes time for yeast to make the dough rise, doesn't it? That's the purpose of it. It takes time. You, you mix it up, and then you let it set, and it rises. It takes time before sin will ruin your life. It takes time for false teachings to work their way through a church and corrupt it. It takes time for the kingdom of heaven to reach every tribe and every nation. So the yeast is a, is a symbol of time more than anything. And in Egypt, they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise Ain't nobody got time for that. They were ready to get out of their slavery. Time was important. And so they ate the meal with haste. They ate it like a teacher with a 20-minute lunch break and 100 copies to make. (laughs) Amen, teachers? 16 years in the classroom, I know what that's all about. Then there are the bitter herbs. Bitter herbs were probably something like horseradish. I remember I was a kid, first time I ever saw that jar of horseradish. I opened it up, took a big whiff of it. And you know what happens when you take a big whiff of horseradish? Yeah, my eyes were watering. That was terrible. Well, that's pretty much what they had um, here on their meal, a bitter herb like uh, horseradish to remind them of the bitterness of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That's the bitterness. That's the symbol of that. Verse 11, this is how you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So they're eating this meal late at night, ready to go. Eat it with haste. It's the Lord's Passover. This reminded me of when I graduated from 
high school, I got a job at Metro Beach. Yeah, I was uh, on the 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. crew. So imagine an 18-year-old trying to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning to get to work on time, you know, going out with your friends. It was hard. So I finally came up with a plan. I, I wore my work clothes to bed. <laughs> I wanted to sleep as long as I possibly could. The alarm would go off, and I would get out of bed and go. Two minutes, I was out the door. I was like the Israelites. They were ready to go, fully dressed. When God said go, go. They were already dressed. All right, so here's the 10th plague. Verse 12. God is going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Every firstborn man and beast would be killed. All the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, verse 13, this is why they had to paint the blood on their doorways. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see that blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover. I will pass over your house. No plague will befall you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that was the purpose of the blood. The Passover is the Passover of their houses. And when it finally happened that night, after they ate their meal of, of a lamb and uh, bitter herbs and unleavened bread, they, they, something happened in Egypt, verse 30. Pharaoh was awakened, rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. In fact, there was not a house where someone was not dead. And immediately, Pharaoh knew why. He summoned Moses and Aaron, and he finally, finally let God's people go. I still can't get Charlton Heston out of my head. Let my people go. Well, he finally let his people go, and God made this Passover, this meal, this time of remembrance, a holiday, basically. Verse 14 This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And they do. The Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. And then following the Passover is another seven-day celebration called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They don't have leavened bread for seven days. Now, you would ask, or I ask you this question. This is God's Passover plan, right? Wrong. This is a foreshadowing of God's Passover plan. God's plan was completed 1,500 years later in Jerusalem on Calvary Hill when Jesus was crucified. 1,500 years later. God redeemed the Israelites from Egypt, but the real plan was for God to redeem the whole world from slavery to sin. And that's what he has done for you. That's why I say this is God's plan for your life. Colossians, Paul writes, all of the Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. God has had this plan from the very beginning. Exodus is the proof. That's why it's beautiful when we read the Old Testament and we make the connection to the New Testament. And I'm thankful that we have all of God's word to see all of his plan. And now my goal is to show you how God's Passover plan was fulfilled by Jesus Christ 
in all of these ways that we have seen. If you've never read Exodus before, I, I encourage you to go home and read these chapters again and see all of these things, these specific details. As we go through Exodus, we're going to get into where God tells Moses how to build the tabernacle and all of the furnishings, and they're very detailed, but they all point to the future. They're all foreshadowing. And here we see Jesus is going to fulfill all of these things. In fact, Jesus said in John 5.39, the scriptures bear witness about me. In Matthew 5.17, he says, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. So how did he fulfill it? I think you're going to love this. I love it. I hope you love it. First is the lamb. The lamb is one member of a flock. How is Jesus one member of a flock? Well, John tells us that the word became flesh. God became human and lived among us. He became a member of our flock. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us by one man, Adam, came death, but by one man, Jesus, came life. I love that. And John the baptizer, he saw Jesus walking by. He was doing his thing, preaching the kingdom of heaven is near, and he saw Jesus walk by, and you know what he said? Behold, it's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He called him the Lamb of God. Jesus is that one member from our race, our humanity, that could save us. The only one. He's a member of the flock. He is the Lamb. Then we see that Jesus is the unblemished Lamb. Because remember, the Lamb had to be unblemished. You know, the, 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 the Jewish people would get in trouble later on if they take the worst lamb. You know, imagine you got a, you got a, you know, you got a herd of, of uh, or I guess it would be a flock of sheep, or you got a herd of cattle, or you got a, is it a flock of goats? I don't even know. I'm not a farmer, but uh, whatever. Uh, you, 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 and you take the worst one, and then you make that your offering. No, God always says, I want the first fruits. I want the best. I want the unblemished lamb. So that means it's got to be perfect. And what man is perfect? Ladies, can you answer that for me? Is there any man in the room that's perfect? Some of you are putting your arm around your husband right now, and that's sweet and special. But you know the answer to that question, don't you? Yeah, no man's perfect. What man never sinned? Just Jesus. Only Jesus. And the New Testament writers were were adamant about pointing this out, that Jesus was without sin. Three places I want to show you. First is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be our sin, even though he knew no sin. So that in Jesus we can become the righteousness of God. Hebrews points out, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect was tempted, just like us, yet without sin. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, Knowing you were ransomed, you were redeemed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like the Lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the unblemished lamb, perfect, never sinned. Then we see the unbroken 
unblemished lamb. Remember, we saw God said to them, don't break the bones of the lamb. It has to be unbroken. You may or may not know this from Easter's past, but when the Romans crucified people, they came up with this way of killing people because it was a slow, excruciating death. Because when a person was hung on the cross, their nails in their hands and in their feet, the only way that they could breathe was to push up with their legs to give their lungs enough room to breathe in. And eventually, they wouldn't have the strength to push up, and they would suffocate to death. So it's a slow, excruciating death. But if the Romans wanted to speed up the process, they would go and break their legs. So they couldn't push up and breathe anymore. And it says in John 19, verse 33, when they came to Jesus on the cross and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Even though the Jews went to Pilate, who was in charge, and asked him to break Jesus' legs because they didn't want to work on the Sabbath. Remember, the crucifixion happened on a Friday. The next day is the Sabbath. The Jews don't work on the Sabbath. So they said, let's speed up the process. Let's get Pilate to break his legs. And when they went to him, he was already dead, so they didn't do that. And then John points out what I'm pointing out to you, verse 36. So the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Why can't his bones be broken? Because he's the unbroken lamb. He's the Passover lamb. And that's what they needed to see, and that's what we need to see today. Then there's the unleavened bread. Boy, I wish somewhere at some point in time, Jesus would have mentioned something about bread. That would really make my job easier right now, you know, if, if, uh, if there was some mention of bread. Oh, wait, oh, he did. John 6, verse 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, equating himself to that manna that's coming. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is our unleavened bread of life. And then there's the bitter herbs. How is Jesus going to pull this off? This bitter herb. How is Jesus the bitter herb? There's no possible way Jesus or any of his disciples could have planned this next one. This is, this is God doing this. Jesus is on the cross. He's at the point of death. He's holding on to the very end. But he can't speak because he's so dehydrated. Been through this, this beating for hours and hours and hours, and he's on the cross and he's about to die. And his disciples can't help him because the Roman soldiers are in charge and they're at a distance. And it says in verse 28 of John chapter 19, Jesus, knowing it all was finished to fulfill the scripture, he says, I'm thirsty. And there was a jar full of sour, bitter wine right there. And the Roman soldiers put a sponge. And get this, they put it on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Are you kidding me? How do they plan that? They don't. This is God showing everyone Jesus is the Passover lamb. Amazing. He tasted the bitterness of death for you and me. Jesus. 
Then there's the blood, the blood that must be shed, the blood that must go on the doorpost. Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. His bloody head on the lintel, his bloody arms and legs on the doorposts. That's our Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. And the last one, the last connection I want you to see, we go back to Exodus 6-6 for a moment. Moses was speaking on behalf of God to Israel, and he points out what God wanted them to to hear. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now, I think it's very interesting that the writer here, Moses, uses the term, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Several more times in the Old Testament, God says he will redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. Just to give you the perspective here, crucifixion was not invented at this time. It was invented much later. And God is going to redeem his people with an outstretched arm. And if you'll just look at this picture, you'll get where I'm going. That's Jesus stretching out his arms to redeem you, to save you from your sins. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God has redeemed you. That's his plan. That's always been his plan. It's the Passover plan, that he would send his son, Jesus, into this world to die for you, because he loves you. And all you have to do is receive the free gift. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you just have to receive it. You can't earn it. You just receive it. It's a gift from God. And I want to encourage you to do that. There's no sin you could ever do that God would not forgive. And if you believe that, you just ask God, please forgive me. Please redeem me. I want to spend eternity with you in heaven. That is how amazing our God is. He has this all worked out, all worked out, all these years. His Passover plan is a plan for you to save you and redeem you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, for your word, and how you had this plan from the very beginning. You had this plan before Adam even sinned to redeem us. And you opened our eyes to it in Exodus. You completed it in the New Testament. We thank you for your son Jesus, our Passover lamb. In so many ways, it's proven that he is our Passover lamb. He has died for us. And it's by grace that we are saved. It's nothing we can do. No, nothing. We can't boast. We simply bow down and say thank you for forgiving us of our sins, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.